1 Corinthians chapter 12 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, what we have here is the Apostle Paul addressing the subject of spiritual gifts. In fact, it starts out in verse 1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Paul wants to uh, un open up the understanding about the different spiritual gifts, and he mentions several things in the chapter. And, and uh, I wanted to really start and read this entire chapter this morning down into the main text, but I realized that the time will not permit me to do that. So let me just... Uh, kind of explain here for those of you that haven't read it in a while that what Paul is doing is he is helping the people of Corinth understand that they've been sort of kind of taking a stand on which gifts are the most important, you know, and I've got the gift of prophecy. I can stand up and I can just preach God's word. I've got the gift of healing. I've got the gift of administration and leadership, or I've got the gift of, of faith. I, this one has the gift of wisdom. And there were some who thought that what they had was the best and others weren't quite, you know, on that level. Yours is not as important. What Paul is saying in this chapter is there is absolutely nobody in the body of Christ who is less important or more important than anybody else. And it doesn't matter what that spiritual gift you have is. You may be the preacher, but you're no more vital to the body of Christ than the one who this week went by the bedside of a sick member and prayed with them and ministered to them. It is just as vital, just as important. It all works together. And so Paul is saying there's no place to argue over which gift is most is the best and, and, and that there are some parts of the body that aren't as important as others. In fact, I'd love to deal more with that, and who knows, maybe tonight we will. But let me come down to the last part of the chapter. Uh, let's begin reading in verse number 27. Now, ye are the body of Christ. That's the oneness and members in particular. Everybody has their role inside the body. And God hath set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Have all the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? No, the answer is no to all of that. I don't know anybody that that has, a, has the corner market on all spiritual gifting, you know? If you ever find anybody that can do it all, watch out. Uh, they're, they're probably operating out of a different spirit. So what is Paul bringing them to? Verse 31, But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. The next verse. He says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. He is saying again, there is no gift over here that makes you more valuable than this one over here. When he outlines all those other gifts, he, un he, he is acknowledging that some of us have this, some of us have this. Some may have two or three spiritual gifts. But those, by our carnal nature, may become a source of division. What Paul is saying is that there is one spiritual gift which is given to every believer and it is the most important spiritual gift. And what is it? 
love. That's it. That is the greatest spiritual gift. And I'm going to tell you, it's easier, far easier to exercise some of these other gifts than it is to exercise that one. It's the greatest, the most powerful. It's the foundation. It's central to everything. It makes all the others work. But it's the hardest. It's hard. I got to tell you, when I settled in to prepare the message for this morning, I had to come face to face with the reality that I had been sensing since Friday morning that I'm about to preach the toughest message that I've preached in a long time, if not ever. On the way to church this morning, the thing that said, I've got nursery this morning, I said, oh good. You won't have to hear me preach on love. She said, uh, well, why is that good? I said, because you won't be able to sit there thinking of how bad I am at it. <laughs> but I am. Boy, I am. And, and I think we know we all are. Because when we read what love really is, we look at it and we say, boy, how come I can't get that right? Let me just go ahead and say something right now. Jesus is right. And you're in Jesus, you're right, okay? You're all right. But we're to be striving to be like Jesus. And there's nothing that defines him better in one word than love. Some may say that I've preached some hard messages before. I hope that I've always preached what God wanted me to preach. That's the desire of my heart. And, and, and I, I'm a, I, you need to know something about me if you don't know it. I, I, I take no pleasure or get no thrill out of what, what some may call hard preaching. That doesn't, that's not my thing I'm looking for. That's not what I'm after. But I take joy in truth that transforms our lives. That matters. But this morning, this is, I believe, certainly hard preaching. Because I'm tasked with preaching a call to live in the love of God. To love as God commanded us to love. Now that's hard. That's not only hard living, I'm just telling you, it's hard preaching. It's hard studying. Because it's like, just moment after moment of, oh, but, but, but it's good. You know why it's good? Because it calls me. It calls me and summons me to something more. And as I am awakened to my weakness in this, I'm also awakened to my desire to, to know it more. You see, this thing of God's love and how we're to live, Paul calls it in verse 31 of chapter 12, he calls it the best gift, the more excellent way. And, and I want you to go all the way down to the end of chapter 13. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these, the greatest of these is charity. Now I tell you, there's nothing like uh, a real faith in God to bring peace in your life and sustain you. There's nothing like hope in the Lord to detach you from this world and help you live toward heaven. But I tell you, love is the greatest of all. And love is the power behind faith. And love is the power behind hope. And it is the reason why love is the greatest of all. But read on, chapter 14, verse 1. Paul says, follow after charity. He says, in other words, this is your number one goal. This is your number one pursuit. He says church, church of Corinth. God says church of McLeansville. 
There are many things you want to do. There are things you admire. You wish that you could play like that person plays or sing like that person sings or, or preach like that person preaches or teach Sundays, whatever it may be. You wish that you could be like that lady and have a prayer, uh, a life of prayer like she does. Or I mean, the list goes on and on. And, and all those things are admirable things that we can look to and say those are helpful and they encourage me in the Lord. And, but the greatest pursuit should be to simply be able to love other people. If you wonder, why is that such a tough message to preach? Then listen very carefully this morning. Because if you're wondering that, I, I promise you, you need this as much as I do. I very much need this message, this word from God to my own heart. And to tell you the truth, I feel very unqualified to preach on this subject in any other way. What qualifies me to preach it is my desperate need for it. I don't love as I should. And I, I don't love as I know that God wants me to love. My only qualification to preach this to you is how much I need it. How much I hunger to know it and how much I want it to be more real in my life. You see, love is, according to Paul, the greatest spiritual gift, but unlike the others listed in 1 Corinthians 12, again, you know, apostles, prophets, teaching, wisdom, discernment, faith, healing, miracles, preaching, administration, and uh, languages, unlike all of those, love is that universal gift of God to all believers. When we were born from above, when we were redeemed in Christ, the love of God was poured into our lives in that new heart which God gave us and by the indwelling of the Spirit of God. The problem is... The problem is, though the love is there, the problem is we have to learn to live in and through that love and live out of that love. We have to learn to walk in that love. We have to learn to become true love in Jesus. That's the effort part. That's the difficult part. The love is not our own. The love of God in us is not by us. We didn't generate it. It was put there. But to live from it, access it, utilize it, we have to learn some things. Love is the very first part of the fruit of the Spirit that's listed in Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Now I wonder this morning if it is only as we discover more of our identity in love that we come to truly understand the realities of joy and peace, and long-suffering, and the rest of it. Perhaps love is the key that unlocks all the rest. The more we learn to live in love, the more we experience the bounty of spiritual fruit in our life. After all, the first commandment is to love God with all our being, body, soul, mind, and spirit. Now we also understand from Galatians 5 that love is in fact produced in our lives by the Spirit. It's fruit of the Spirit. There is no true follower of Jesus. Now listen to me, there's no true follower of Jesus who is depraved of God's love. You have it. It's in you. It's a gift of God. It was there all along. He's loved you since the, before the foundations of the world were ever laid. And when you were 
born anew into the family of God, that love came into you. It's there. If you're like me, sometimes it feels like, you know, we're wading through, you know, men, your wife's closet, looking for something, you know, like, it's in there. I know it's in there, but I can't find it. Okay, ladies, like you're wading through your husband's garage trying to find that one thing. You, uh, keep all things equal. It's there. Yet I know that the spiritual garden... Oh, Brother Charlie did such a good job preaching on that during the conference. You remember that? But I know that spiritual garden of my soul can become overgrown with the weeds and the thorns known as the works of the flesh. Because in Galatians 5 and verse 19 through 21, Paul mentions things like sexual immorality. Things we do that are perverse. He mentions things like lustful thoughts and pursuits. Idols in our life. Quarreling and jealousy and anger and selfishness and envy. These are all works of the flesh. And see, they will... They will kind of mess up that spiritual garden. They're like the weeds and the thorns that grow in there. Well, what do we do with those things? Part of the learning how to exercise this great spiritual gift is learning to crucify the flesh with its desires and lusts and learning how to walk in, that is to follow the leadership of the Spirit. Every Christian should be learning how to follow the leadership of the Spirit. One question that we will often ask ourselves is, how do I know? How do I know if this is God or not? Did you ask Him? Did you ask Him for His guidance? Does your flesh cringe at the idea of it? <laughs> That'd be a good indication. We have to learn to trust the Lord is real and leading. We're not deists, are we? You know what a deist is, don't you? Somebody that believes in God, but believes God's way off in heaven and not actually involved in the day-to-day -day world. We're not deists. We believe that God is intimately involved in each one of our lives. He, will, he, he is desiring, to. Jesus said, to give us the kingdom. It's His joy to do that. He knows when every bird falls from the sky and He knows the number of hairs on your head. He's very much involved in the details of our life. And here's the thing, in my life, in my life to pray, to study, and to preach on this very convicting thing, I know that I make myself accountable to the whole church. Because you can say, preacher, you said we ought to love each other, and you said that God's Word says love looks like this, and I don't know if you're loving me right now. You know, it's a good thing for me to make myself accountable to you. Because I tell you this, if the pastor doesn't love, then what good is he? And, 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 and on that could spread through the church if the Sunday school teacher doesn't love. If the church member, a part of that body, doesn't love, what good are we? How are we helping and benefiting one another? Here's the thing about it. You see, I know how to live in preaching. I know how to do that. I've been doing that for 25 years. Soon be 26. I know how to live in preaching. And I know some things about prayer and study and solitude and, and all that. But, you know, if I master all of those things and have no true love, Paul says I'm nothing more than sanctified nothingness. Wouldn't that be a bad thing to be? 
just a, a glob of sanctified nothingness. I mean, I could wow the crowd and give a great speech and, and, and have all my doctrine right and my theology be sound and really put it out there and pray eloquent prayers. But walk away from here and never really love people. You see, when you look at it like that, all this other stuff is kind of easy. Now, we ought to love in that stuff. Boy, if I don't love you when I'm preaching to you, my preaching means nothing, right? But I got to love you when I'm not preaching to you. I got to love you when I see you out on the street or when we're sitting at the table or, or, or when you come to me with a complaint. It's not always easy to love people, is it? You know how it is. We like to say, well, I love them, but I don't like them. Well, I kind of understand that. I mean, let's just be honest. I think Jesus loved a lot of people he didn't like. But you know, loving them doesn't mean treating them like dirt. Because even if we don't like them, we still need to love them. That's the catch, isn't it? Oh, Lord, help us to learn this thing of love. What is God's love? What is this love that Paul's talking about? Because it would help us to qualify that love. What is real love? Real love. Obviously, the world is full of false love or a lesser love. I mean, you think about it, there's no other topic more written about, more sung about, more talked about in the world than love. Love is, a, is, is the theme of life. Everybody's into love. We're either hearing someone pine for it, someone trying to express it as best they can, or we even see people fighting and killing in the name of it. Literally. How many riots and wars and killings are done in the name of love? Most of them. Most of them. In fact, the very basic definition of the world's kind of love may well be this. It is a selfish expression of desire based on my perceived needs or interests. I want to say that again. I think a basic definition of the world's kind of love is a selfish expression of desire based on my perceived needs or interests. In other words, I do because it best suits me in some way. I will fight you in the name of love. But really, it's in the name of myself masquerading as love. You see, that's the world's kind of love. Hostile words are often spoken in the name of love. And, and Christians, we try to sanctify it by calling it speaking the truth in love. But when our motive is strictly winning being right, coming out on top, that's not true love. True love may be defined this way, as a self-sacrificing gift of my whole person for the needs of others. A self-sacrificing gift of my entire person for the needs of others. What I love about the passage in Deuteronomy that Brother Corey read this morning is that God told His people, Israel, He said, I loved you because I love you. That's what that passage says. I encourage you, go back and read it again sometime today. He said, I loved you because I love you. You didn't earn it, but you didn't have to earn it. I chose, I choose to love you because my love rescues you. Now, when you think about it, if that is what God's love is and what God's love does, then when God's love is at work in my life, I love others 
because I love them. Not because they earn it. Not because they deserve it. I love them because I love them. I choose to love them because my love, which is God's love working through me, will rescue them. You see, that is never about me. That real love is never about me. I'm just a tool. I'm just a vessel. It's about their heart and God's desire to change them, to help them, to heal them, to rescue them. I'm sure that you know the New Testament word here is agape. The, the, the root of that is agapeo. Now, agapeo means to love, but this plural form agape is often understood as a love feast. It is a feast of love. <laughs> Man, that right there is just enough to step back and say, woe is me. I feel like the love I hand out sometimes is a little slice here and a little slice there. Here's a morsel, there's a morsel. Everybody gets a little morsel. But God's love is a love feast. God's kind of love is the kind of love that whenever you come around God, you leave satiated in love, just dripping with it. Now, what if our lives were like that? What if people, what if people just loved to come around us because they felt so much love? Oh, boy. You know, I, I've often prayed, I, now that I'm wanting to use it as an example, I'll forget the verse, but um, there's a verse in the Psalms that talks about your people will be glad when they see me because I have hoped in thy word in Psalm 119. And I've often, as a, as a preacher and a pastor, made that part of my prayer. Lord, I want the people to be glad when I come because they know they're going to hear something of your word. I mean, they, I want the people to know when I get in the pulpit, I'm there not for myself, but I'm there to give them your word. And I want them to be excited and glad to hear me preach so they'll hear your word. But you know what would be good? If I'd learn to pray more that people would experience love when they see me. That's convicting. That grabs me on the bottom of my heart. Kind of squeezes a little bit. But you know, that's who Jesus was. When I read the Gospels and, and I read them with the help of the Spirit, I often think, oh, if I could just be like Him. Why can't I be like Him? Why can't I be more like Jesus? Hadn't mentioned it in a long time. Some of us that have watched the Chosen series, we're waiting on season three. I guess we're going to have to get up off of our money and give some money so they can get it made. <laughs> I, I know it's a little different if you're not familiar with it. If you are, some like it, some don't. I understand that. And I know it's just a performance and those aren't real people, but I tell you, I watch every episode of that and I think, why can't I be more like that? Why can't I treat people like he treats people? And let's be honest, I can't because I'm not him. But as the years go by, I hope to become more and more like that. Now, when you see me on the other side, you're going to see somebody who's just like Jesus. And you're going to say, who are you? <laughs> and I'm going to say, boy, it's all by his grace. I'm glad for that hope. 
I'm glad one day I'll treat you the way you ought to be treated. Let me say this a little bit ahead of myself. In that day, I'll treat myself the way I ought to be treated. Because I'm going to be honest with you, the reason we struggle loving others is because we struggle loving ourselves. Let me come back to, to this thought, agape. Agape, the love feast. I think it's interesting that Paul and, and, and the translators use the word charity here in verse 13. But you see, charity is more than a feeling. Charity is an act of generosity. It's love in action, and that is God's love. Always love in action, love at work, love transforming those around it and in it. Agape love is more than serving and doing, though. You see, we can serve and do and call it love when all the time it's selfishness masks as love. Think about this. We can do a whole lot for others simply from a craving for appreciation or recognition, and that's not true love. I mean, we can give the shirt off our back. Well, I mean, what did Paul say in, 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 in chapter 13? He, in, you see, that, that, that first verse kind of gets it, preachers like me. But that third verse gets at some of you who are really good at doing for others. You're just there. That you're, you're, man, they call, they need you, you're there. Boom, you're there. You're going to stop what you're doing, you're going to be there. And, and you may think it's love, but is it love? You see, because Paul says, I can give my body to be burned. And if I have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. And a lot of our doing and serving can be coming out of a place of just wanting to be appreciated and please people. It's not because we've surrendered everything for the greater good of others. That's love. Romans 12, 9, Paul says, Let love be without dissimulation. And, and, and what that means is don't just be pretending to love. Don't do that. Really, actually, love. Luke 11, Jesus addresses it. Same thing, but kind of another population of people. There are those who do and go and serve, and you know they're like Martha. But they might be doing it from a sense of, you know, I want to be seen and recognized and appreciated for what I do. But, but then there's this other group of people that do a lot of things because they just want to be right, you know. And Jesus addresses them in Luke 11, verse 42 and 43. He says, But woe unto you, Pharisees, for ye tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs. I mean, these guys were serious about tithing, man. There was no debate over gross or net. They weren't wondering what they should do with when they got a Christmas gift. Or birthday, they weren't trying to figure out, well, do I need to tithe on this? I mean, was it actually increase in income? Or, there was, none of that. These guys were tithing on their herbs, man. They would get, uh, their garden would grow, and when they'd go out and get a crop of herbs, they would tithe off that. Well, they were serious. But look what he says. He says, these ought ye to, or he says, you tithe on mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass over judgment and the love of God. You see? They were determined to do right, be right, look right, act right. And they missed the love of God. That's a bad thing. Jesus says, these ye ought to have done. Yes, tithe everything. There ain't no reason not to give God everything you can give God. But he says, don't leave the other undone. Discernment and love are what makes salvation known. For ye love the uppermost seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. 
<laughs> oh, boom. Now that's good preaching right there, ain't it? Jesus tells us in John 15, 13, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And yes, Jesus did that on Calvary, didn't he? Jesus laid down his life for his friends on Calvary, but he had done it thousands of times for each one of them throughout all those years. And for each one of us, for thousands and thousands of times, Jesus had laid down his life throughout his life, his very leaving of heaven to come to earth and become a man was the great laying down of his life. Let me read to you Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 through 8. Here is our example of love. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He had no apology to make but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now that's love. And from the day Jesus gave up or laid aside his divinity and became a man, Throughout his life, he was constantly laying down his life for his friends. Your great act of love will not be dying on the battlefield somewhere. That can be a great act of love. And I think that some who have been around that might even would say that that sometimes could be an easier sacrifice than to daily lay down the life for others. The ugly, raw truth is, much of the time, our love is motivated by a desire that others, out of appreciation to us, will just kind of lay down their lives on our behalf. Like, what I'm saying is we do for people, hoping that they will in turn kind of give us what we're after. Sort of a bartering thing. We want them to lay down their agenda for our agenda. Lay, it, lay down their desires for our desires. Lay down their welfare for our welfare. Our philosophy becomes something like, I do for you so that you should require nothing more of me until I'm ready to do for you again. Now let that sink in just a moment. Our philosophy of love becomes Something like, I do for you, so you should require nothing of me until I am ready to do for you again. And that is not laying down our life for one another. If you want to know what true love in action looks like, look back at our text in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth, rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things, charity never faileth. 
In other words, love is patient. Love is not jealous. Love is not proud. Love does not demand its own way. Love is not irritable. And love keeps no record of wrongdoing. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices over truth winning out. It ain't about, I get my way, you get your way. It's about truth being served. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. Love is full of hope. Love endures through everything. Love never fails. So when you're thinking to yourself, I love him, but this is all I can take. I'm done. No, 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 no. You're not loving him or loving her. Say, preacher, you've been listening to my, looking into my marriage. Who said I was talking about your marriage? You see, this is more than that, but it is that. It's our children. It's our parents. It's our friends. It's our co-workers, our brothers. We say, I love them, but I just tell you one thing. I ain't going to have nothing else to do with them. You don't love them. That's not love. That is not God's love. That's world's love, not God's love. What will this thing look like in your home? If we get this right, what would it look like in your marriage, in your parenting, or in honoring your parents? I thought about if I really got this right in my life, how would it translate? Probably there'd be a hurry to forgive offenses. Not tomorrow, but now. Probably I wouldn't feel the need to get the last word. Probably I would have more understanding when no is the answer. Probably I wouldn't do so much condemning of outward appearance, but I would seek to know the true heart of the person. Now to get this right... To get this right, we have to go all the way back to the beginning. And we're going to have to get help from Jesus. And so I'm going to leave us here this morning. But I'm telling you, to get this right, we're going to have to pray. 